Welcome to the Unfair Podcast. and welcome to the OMFIF podcast. I'm Taylor Pierce and I work as economist of OMFIF's Economic and Monetary Policy Institute. It's a pleasure for me to introduce our guests today, Pedro Duarte Neves and Bill Papadakis. Pedro is advisor for the board of directors of Banco de Portugal. He chairs a number of EU committees in financial stability and banking in the scope of the Joint Committee of the European Supervisory Authorities and of the European Banking Authority. He was Vice Governor of Banco de Portugal and Vice Chair of the European Banking Authority. He's also a visiting professor at Catolica Lisbon School of Business and Economics, associate at the Systemic Risk Center at LSC here in London, and a member of the Advisory Board of the European Banking Institute. Bill Papadakis is an investment strategist in Lombard ODA's macro team and has been with the bank in Geneva since early 2016. Prior to this role, he was working at the Investment Bank of Credit Suisse as a market strategist within the Fixed Income Research Department in London. Bill started his career working at the London office of JP Morgan, where he rotated in the credit derivatives and commodity exotics departments. Welcome both. I look forward to discussing financial stability with you today. Thank you very much. Taylor, I mean, let me start by thanking you and Ophi for having me here. It's also great to join Bill Papadakis for this podcast. And of course, the usual disclaimer applies. The views and opinions expressed are mine and not necessarily those of Bank of Portugal and the Euro system. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you, um, Pedro. And thank you, Taylor. Nice to be here with you. Great. great. Thanks. So to start with some background, despite being hit by the largest exogenous shock in its history in March 2020, the global financial system seems to have weathered the COVID-19 storm fairly well. It looked like the regulatory frameworks introduced after the 2008 financial crisis had passed their first major test. But just as economies and financial markets were beginning to recover from the unprecedented shocks, the spike in commodity and energy prices, fragmentation of payment systems, and disruption of trade and global supply chains as fallout from the war in Ukraine has certainly heightened global financial risk once again. This also comes against the backdrop of climate change and the transition to a carbon neutral economy um, increasing in urgency. So perhaps you could both start by providing an overview of the current landscape for financial stability. From your perspective, how resilient are financial markets in the face of these exogenous shocks? What are the biggest downside risks? Um, and more acutely, what will fallout from the war in Ukraine mean for financial stability? Pedro, I can start with you. Yeah, thank you very much, Taylor. Well, just to start, financial reforms implemented over the last 15 years were very successful. And today the financial sector is much more resilient uh, at global level. And that uh, is particularly uh, the case for the banking sector. Uh, we are in a moment of exceptionally high uncertainty. And that uh, has to do, of course, no one knows how will be the future evolution of the war in Europe, uh, how the structural change in the economy following the pandemic and the climate transition will uh, affect resources allocation across sectors. A lot of uncertainty on the evolution of supply disruptions, on monetary policy and the path for the project interest rate uh, increases, on the eroding effect of inflation in real disposable income. Uh, so there is an exceptional uncertainty moment. What we know already is that global financial conditions have already tightened. Uh, sovereigns, corporates and households are facing higher interest rates, which is particularly relevant in the context of an all-time high debt of the non-financial sector. Turning to your question on the many uh, on the downside risks, unfortunately, there are a couple of them, risks of uh, sharp corrections in equity markets, of increasing corporate spreads, 
risks of bank asset quality deterioration if uh, the real economy does not go well, risks of correction in housing prices, risks of tighter financial conditions, and higher risks of capital outflows in emerging market economies, and risks accumulated in the non-banking sector. And for sure, we'll have the opportunity to come back to that. I mean, for me, the special focus in what concerns risks are the ones that are associated with high private debt and in particular with corporate debt, uh, as there was a spike uh, in private debt as a result of the pandemic. And here, I'd like to recall um, the recent uh, Global Financial Stability Report of the IMF that concluded risks are likely to be higher in countries where indebtedness is more concentrated among uh, stretched firms, where fiscal space is more limited, where insolvency regimes are less efficient, and when and if monetary policy is tightened more rapidly and uh, by more. Uh, so that's my first answer to your question, Taylor. Thanks. Yeah, I, we'll come back to um, non-bank financial institutions and corporate debt as well. But Bill, did you want to add to that from your perspective? Sure. I mean, I, I would certainly echo the sentiment that given the reforms and the efforts from the private sector that have taken place uh, ever since the global financial crisis, we certainly have seen a much more resilient banking system today. And that's been a very important factor. It was a strength for the global system throughout the COVID crisis as well. But yes, I would also highlight the fact that there are a number of risks out there. I think Pedro provided a very exhaustive list already, but I would perhaps add a couple of thoughts here. One is that within the financial system at large, there are often hidden exposures that are not captured very well by headline indicators. Maybe in that context, you know, the, the recent Archegos um, story was a very interesting one affecting both non-bank financial institutions on the one hand, but also banks that were the counterparties of the family office on the other hand. And perhaps a broader, more macro issue here is that for a long time, the system has been used to low interest rates and a low inflation environment. And we've had positive growth that helps to hide many of the vulnerabilities that might be out there. And at the moment where many of these factors are shifting, and this is certainly true right now, both in terms of the inflation outlook and of the outlook for interest rates and monetary policy, these changes might reveal uh, further vulnerabilities amongst actors that have gotten used to uh, particularly low interest rates for a long time. And as we shift into this new environment, we might be faced with losses or episodes of volatility that cause distress in parts of the system. So that would be definitely an area to watch. Yeah, definitely. We can get into some of the more specific risks in a minute, but um, just to segue off of that, it does seem in hindsight that the last 30 years or so were a period of relatively quiet geopolitics in comparison to today. And markets, financial markets as well, seem to have benefited from the so-called peace dividend, um, weathering far fewer successive shocks than we've seen just in the past two years. So would you say that existing macroprudential frameworks are adequate in the current macro environment? Or given the various global crises, do you think that we are or should be entering into a new paradigm in financial regulation 
whereby resiliency takes precedent over efficiency. Bill, I'll come to you first. Sure. Thank you, Taylor, for the question. So I would say that we have certainly seen a strengthening of macroprudential uh, frameworks, as we've mentioned that earlier. But I would also highlight that looking through the exercises that are often undertaken by the relevant authorities, we often see some areas where one can spot certain gaps. So I would say that often we see these exercises suffering from a certain kind of recency bias. In other words, we are trying to fight uh, the last war and given that the environment is changing and the risks are coming from elsewhere, I think the uh, number of factors that we should be looking at uh, in terms of the public sector and the private sector should be as broad as possible. And I guess the, the same uh, applies to uh, how stress tests and other exercises are designed in terms of, you know, how many variables and how many different scenarios are, are involved in there. I think sometimes one can spot a certain lack of imagination, if you will. So we didn't really foresee how bad the situation would get in Ukraine. We didn't really imagine in many of the scenarios that we were designing what a global pandemic and a series of lockdowns would mean for governments, financial actors, and non-financial actors. And as a result, I think looking through the prism of the crisis we have recently experienced, we should always try and keep an eye on these risks that are not in the baseline or downside scenarios in the exercise that we design, but are very pertinent for the system. Yeah, should definitely be more forward-looking, I suppose. Pedro, did you want to add anything to that? Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Taylor. I will start by um, stress testing. I mean, stress testing played uh, a very important role uh, for strengthening the resilience of the banking sector, and that applies for the euro area, the U.S., and the UK, and uh, I mean, stress testing, increasing capital levels in the banking sector is why one, one of the reasons that uh, the banking sector is more resilient today. Having said that, um, I see a couple of ways of improving the use of stress testing. And I just uh, say three or four, I mean, I think it's needed to reinforce the role of macroprudential stress testing. It is advisable to integrate banking, non-banking, insurance and pension funds in the same stress testing exercise because integrating different segments of financial sector have the advantage of taking into account amplification and interconnectedness uh, effects. I would favor top-down stress testing in Europe and of course authorities are already doing some on that and as well to apply new topics like uh, as we have seen in the past further developing climate transition stress testing and also focus on profitability and business model assessments uh, in what concerns the existing macroprudential framework up to now it has worked um, i would say very very well uh, but there is a public consultation run by the european commission and um, I mean, I will just mention two relevant points for me uh, to address the issue of availability of releasable buffers. And second, I mean, the need for a timely and consistent implementation of Basel III uh, finalization. Uh, in what concerns your question on the new paradigm in financial regulation, I mean, since the global financial crisis, uh, resilience really uh, ranks uh, very high in policymaker preferences. 
and we can see them in the way that capital requirements uh, are calculated and, and, and have increased so much. So initially there was a focus on the numerator, so more and better capital, then a focus on the denominator when the issue of risk weight assets variability was addressed, then a focus on a more holistic and robust approach uh, using leverage ratios and output floors. And finally, capital requirements became um, uh, specific, either having in mind uh, the conditions of uh, particular institutions like the pillar, pillar two requirements, adjustment to the systemic importance of the institutions like the GCIPs or OZs buffers, the cyclical position of the economy or even uh, morale requirements. So, I mean, the new paradigm in financial regulation has shifted um, very clearly towards the resilience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the post-financial um, uh, regulatory frameworks under the Basel Accords have definitely been comprehensive, but perhaps we can now shift to some areas where risk still seems to be quite pressing. So one is associated with the levels of corporate debt, which you've mentioned before. After taking advantage of over a decade of cheap credit and loose monetary policy, it seems like the vulnerabilities of this growth model are becoming apparent. So a question for both of you, how serious a risk do you think current corporate debt levels pose to financial stability? And then perhaps for you, Pedro, what do you think it would take for policymakers to balance um, these elevated vulnerabilities while avoiding a disorderly tightening of financial conditions? Pedro, I can start with you. Okay, thank you, Taylor. Well, I mean, the message from the past uh, is, is very clear. High levels of debt or credit booms, and that applies to mortgage debt, debt to the non-tradable sector, asset prices, bubbles fueled by credit or public debt booms. I mean, credit booms are often followed by economic underperformance and or um, financial crisis. And there is a very good paper from uh, the Committee on the Global Financial System uh, on this topic, uh, very recent. So I think it's important to recognize that corporate debt has some vulnerabilities. I mean, there is the risk in interest rate increases, the duration of growth prospects, asymmetric impact of these two unique shocks, the pandemic and the war across countries, across economic sectors, within sectors. And of course, the excessive risk taking that took place and that leads us to the leverage loan issues. So there are a couple of risks there. But of course, it is, however, important to remind that um, corporate sectors in aggregate have accumulated buffers. And it's also true that the prudential reforms have boosted the resilience uh, of the banking sector. But of course, is where I see more risks. I mean, concerning uh, the required macroprudential action, I, I just uh, mentioned the key topics. I think it's important to increase macroprudential space. It is important to develop a macroprudential framework for non-banks. It is important to develop a macroprudential framework for insurers and pension funds. It is important to address the insurance protection gaps issue. And of course, uh, to avoid the reputational risks associated with the conduct breaches, mis-selling, money laundering, etc., etc. What uh, can be done today on uh, more targeted macroprudential tools? 
I think that borrower-based measures are specifically designed to address uh, rising non-financial sector vulnerabilities. So, I mean, they should be used and they are being used in many countries. A greater supervisory attention to risk-taking and a swift implementation of macro-provincial tightening as soon as macro conditions permit that. Great. Yeah, thanks for that comprehensive list. Bill, I wonder if you could provide sort of the market perspective. Which um, sectors or regions do you think would be hit the hardest in the face of further regulatory tightening? So maybe I can start with a quick point on the narrower question previously on corporate debt and the risks that it poses to the financial system as a whole. And maybe I could say here that certainly we have seen an increase in the outright levels of corporate debt, but I wouldn't put it at the top of my list of financial risks out there. I mean, there are a couple of things to keep in mind here. One being that to some extent, the increase in debt levels that we've seen in the corporate sector can also be seen as a sort of natural response by that sector to an environment of really low interest rates for a really long period of time. So to refinance at low rates and longer maturities was certainly a sensible financial decision in many cases. And maybe I would also make that point that what matters is not the level of debt in isolation, but the overall financial picture. So we should be thinking about debt at the same time as we think about uh, the health of the overall balance sheet, which our corporate sectors looks very decent at this point, but also the trends in terms of profitability and growth that are the uh, big questions, not just for the current environment, but also for the years to come. And then maybe, uh, Taylor, to move on to your question about uh, specific sectors that might be suffering uh, the most from a change in the regulatory environment in the years to come, I can envision certain sectors that have a significant vulnerability to a change in the environment. I mean, one key risk out there has, of course, to do with climate risks and environmental-related risks. So you can imagine uh, parts of the industrial sector that have continued to work under an old framework and as global regulatory pressure increases to be more mindful of environmental concerns, certain business models have to be restructured or otherwise the risk uh, becoming highly unprofitable. And I can also imagine a number of companies in different sectors that have emerged in recent years and the regulatory environment hasn't yet taken shape. So here, I think, you know, within the financial sector, you can imagine uh, digital assets or crypto assets being primed for a tighter regulation in the years to come. And given that in many cases, the regulators have been somewhat behind the developments that have been taking place in the private sector, there will be an element of catch up and that might catch certain actors uh, off guard. So that, that is certainly a key to watch, a key risk to watch within the financial sector. Great. 
I think that we've covered a lot of ground there. So maybe as we've already discussed non-bank financial institutions a bit, I would like to turn to sustainable finance, which we touched on, Bill, um, and the implications of climate change and financial risk analysis. This is a particularly difficult challenge, not least due to financial markets, short-term memory, and the long-term impacts of climate change. We've seen that the EU has been a vanguard in greening policy and regulation, having already introduced mandated reporting and disclosure for financials under the FSTR, as well as the sustainable taxonomy. Pedro, how else are you seeing the implications of climate change being integrated into financial risk analysis and policies? Yeah, thank you very much, Taylor. Well, we know that uh, financial risks stemming from climate change have uh, many dimensions, physical transition and litigating risks. And once again, it's important to have in mind the transmission and amplification uh, mechanisms uh, that uh, exist. In what uh, terms to say financial stability? I mean, from the point of view of uh, microprudential supervision, uh, I think it's very important the work that has been done, I mean, in Europe by the CB in particular, by the definition of supervisor expectations on the adaptation to climate transition. And that covering aspects like uh, business model strategy, governance, risk appetite, disclosures, as also the work on the assessment of the transition plans of the financial institutions. Once again, stress testing, both bottom-up and top-down, and the ECB has really uh, remarkable thorough work on this. And finally, the incorporation of climate change uh, considerations in the, what in Europe we call the SREP procedure, so determination of uh, specific uh, requirements of, of capital. There is some work recent uh, by DCB where, I mean, the, the, what DCB concludes is that the expectation on disclosures are not uh, met by uh, market participants and that covering uh, um, a long list uh, of aspects. And that, that is it, Taylor. Thank you for that. I, I wonder, Bill, if you could respond to that and, and add how you're seeing the financial sector respond to these emerging challenges related to sustainability. And also, perhaps, do you think it's more likely that we see a kind of global standard on um, climate and climate risk modeled after Europe's policies? Or are we seeing more of a kind of ad hoc proliferation of different standards? These are two great questions, I guess. On, on the latter one, I would say that from what we've seen so far, it doesn't appear clear to me that we're going towards the direction of the global standard. We see individual decisions by uh, various authorities being taken. Sometimes there is a certain level of coordination, but we're nowhere near you know, a clear global standard that then everyone starts to use. In terms of uh, the earlier question about how the financial sector is responding, I would say that we have certainly seen a shift in recent years, at least in terms of the rhetoric, the language being used and the intentions being expressed by the financial sector to take uh, necessary measures to address the issue. Now, I do have some doubts as to how effective the actual actions that have been taken are really. So certainly a shift in the level of rhetoric, but I think what we're probably still missing is a much clearer uh, outlining at the financial sector level of what exactly the objective is, what the action plan of each company in order to achieve 
that objective will be within a certain um, timeline and what the expected impact from the various business lines will be. And I'm afraid that until and unless we get to that point that we have enough clarity on these questions, we are certainly facing significant risk that we remain more focused at the level of rhetoric rather than the concrete action plan. Taylor, if you allow me here, I mean, you'll just mention the risk of proliferation of standards. And of course, that is a risk. It is, however, important uh, to say that at the EU level, the European supervisory authorities are developing and implementing as much as consistent possible standards. And at the global level, the work by the Financial Stability Board, and particularly the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, I mean, is developing recommendations that are aiming to achieve um, consistency at global level, which, of course, uh, is, uh, as Bill mentioned, uh, still very much room for progress. Definitely. Um, I hope that we start to see more convergence in global standards, given the urgency and importance of, um, of this issue. I think that concludes my questions. I just want to turn to you both now and see if you have any final thoughts or maybe just a sentence or two on the, the outlook for financial stability. I'll turn to you first, Bill. Thank you, Taylor, and thank you uh, both for a very interesting discussion. I guess the, the key takeaway here is that we shouldn't ignore the progress that has been uh, done in recent years. But as the conversation shows, there are a number of fronts where we could be doing uh, further progress. Great, thank you. And Pedro, final thoughts? Well, I, I, I will conclude in a very similar way as Bill has concluded, but uh, I mean, reverting the order. So we are really facing uh, large risks and there is a huge uncertainty that no one knows how it's going to end. But it's very important to say that there was a huge progress uh, since the global financial crisis, both in the resilience of uh, the banking sector, as well as in the use of macroprudential policy. So that really is very helpful and proved very well during the recent uh, pandemic crisis. Great. Well, um, I'd just like to thank both of you, Bill and Pedro, again for joining me today. And I'll wrap up by thanking our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to OMFIF Podcasts which are available on Spotify, iTunes, and anywhere where podcasts are available. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the OMFIF podcast.